Get it professionally yeah. done real soon. <laughs> 2021, son. That's Happy New Year's to everybody. This is the Nonprofits Podcast episode seven, right? Seven is right. Hey, Stephen, did you say Happy New Year's with an S on it? No, that's like possessive. It's it's the hmm. New Year's time to do it. I don't wait. Do you not? Is that not a thing? You don't say Happy New Year's with an S. No, it's just happy new year. It's just one year turning new. It's just the one new year. It's like saying shrimps. It's like saying shrimps. It's just like that. It's exactly like that. I'm trying to get my Skrilla straight in the street so I can buy some shrimps. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you, you know what I was just listening to was Paul Wall's Grills. Oh, my God. That's what, <laughs> where is that? Where's Paul Wall? We, we're, we need to start a campaign. Fine, Paul. You know he got he like he lost weight and got in really good shape. And married, no, and married his believe it or not, I have not been keeping up with how Paul Wall is doing. Yeah, and he married his Nubian queen. You mean the Iceman Paul Wall? He's got his mouth looking something like a disco ball. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that dude. He was the worst. I was listening to like that was all New Year's Eve. I was New Year. No, New Year's Eve. That makes sense though because that's possessive that's the new it's the eve of new year's <laughs> new year po- a, apostrophe stop, stop trying to make new year's happen stop trying to make it happen i see what you're doing but anyway back to new year's eve what was happening i was listening to like all like chingy i was okay. listening to grills okay. uh, i i oh do you know a uh, shaky tail feather with uh murphy lee and nelly so you know all of these, you know all of this, right? But you had to look up who Sally Fields was. I'm sorry, those are two completely different schools of thought. Well, one's an actual living legend. <laughs> the others are mumble rap, mumble mouth rappers. That and then there's Sally Fields, because clearly you were talking about bump. Nelly. I said, I said they bump though. They they smack. They slap. Do you remember? Do you remember that was like when music videos were tight when like uh the the whole soundtrack to movies was really cool because shake your tail feather was on bad boys two or bad boys where did shake your tail feather go i can't rem- i remember it but i can't remember oh, how- oh, 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 oh. whoa whoa she, it, it, it was like dum 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 do it for nothing oh yes okay Murphy Lee. Yes. Who you are, what you came with, yes. turn around, okay. turn around, who you came with, is that your mama or your, wait, is that your, yeah. is that your, is it, is, is that your booty or your mama half brain dead, I think is what the line is. <laughs> you know, I think that, that the, would not be the worst line in hip hop. There's, I want to say it's T.I. that has a lyric that says, if you pass the test, I'll put my dick on your breast. And now here's <laughs> the problem with that, with that sentence. So many things, but the most, but not the least of which is, do you want to pass that test or not, or fail it, right? Like, it's such a conundrum because if I fail the test that leads to a dick on my breast, does that make me stupid? But what or, is the test? I don't know what the test is, but if I pass it, guess what comes next? You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that to happen, but I also don't want to be too stupid to fail it. You feel me? So you're just trapped in a, it's just, you're in a, in a rock and a hard place, literally. I think a rock if, and a hard dick. That's I like to think of somebody doing a Scantron and just like sweating on the Scantron and just not sure. Like <laughs> if, if you feel C all the way down, you have the highest probability chance of getting T.I.'s dick on your chest. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Wow. We, we've gone, I feel like we've gotten off track. I mean, but I feel like it's fine. It's the new year. Right. The new year. And we're shaking up. And you can probably tell from my background. We hold on. There we go. Look at that. I know I disappeared. We act for environmental justice is uh, our nonprofit tonight. And I'm so excited. And here's why I'm excited, because the the young lady that's going to be coming on 
from that organization to talk with us. Her name is Kareen Taylor. And how do I, what do I say about her? She is one of the most amazing humans that I know. She's, so I met her in comedy, right? I just thought she was like, oh, yay. I love when another black woman shows up on the scene. I'm like, yes, someone I can commiserate with, someone that I can kick it with. We probably have some shared life experiences. We can kick it. Hopefully she's not a, you know, she's not a bitch, right? Um, And not because she's black, calm down people, but just because women be bitches sometimes. But anyway, uh, and then I met her and she's, she's giggly and hilarious and smart. And I say giggly, and that might sound like a stupid thing to make note of, but like my daughter's very giggly and I, and I'm not a giggly person just because my life has been sad up until now. And so (laughs) when I meet every second. Yeah, well, no, I mean, up until like literally the last probably two years. So when I meet black women or, or black men who are giggly and can kind of be like free and, and filled with laughter, it makes my heart swell with joy. Does that sound silly? Do you get that? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. And she's one of those humans. And so I'm excited to have her on. She's also an esquaw. Yeah, we got some lawyers in the house. It's our Motherfucking first lawyer. lawyer. What? We're going to ask environmental lawyer, bitch. What? How do I not pay my taxes? I know. So it's dope. You have any uh, you have any interesting environmental related (laughs) stories? Yeah. yeah. Um, Nostalgic about. So what I find very cool about the nonprofit is that it's going to bat for people in lower socioeconomic uh, underserved areas from an environmental standpoint, right? We've, we've talked to organizations that are dealing with um, incarceration rates and we've talked to organizations that are dealing with food scarcity and stuff like that, but this is the first time that we've dealt with one that is dealing with environmental specifically. And the environment's a very interesting thing because it's something that a lot of people just dish off to other people, right? Like I, I used to do a lot of work in Brazil. I used to do a Brazil, lot Brazil, no, Brazil. Uh, I hate when America, I have a friend who lived in Barcelona for a long time. And if you say Barcelona like that, she's like, Barcelona. And I'm like, bitch, you are so white. I'm going to need you to shut up. Go ahead. And it's the only word that they can say in Spanish. The only one, right? The only one. Girl, bye. But go ahead. I I was just messing with you. But um, so I used to do a lot of work with like automotive crash research. And so uh, Brazil had just put into place. Wait a minute. Were you a test dummy? (laughs) <laughs> no, but I worked with a lot of them. Those, yo, those things go for like a quarter mil, a half mil per, per dummy. That's crazy. I'm going to tell a different story right now that's, and then come back. But so I used to do work with this uh, research lab that I can't say because it would uh, be illegal, but they did cadaver testing. And so one of the things, one of the many things that your body could go to if you say that you'll be a, uh, an organ donor is it could be put into a Toyota Tundra and smashed into a wall. That is. Did you just tell us the brand by saying that? No, 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 no. But um, this, there's uh, testing facilities that do it. Oh, gotcha. So do do they at least get the organs out and send them to save people first? Nah. Well, okay. it, but it is all, it is still going towards the safety of the public as a whole. But so check this. So we, we would uh, go to this place and it was cadaver testing and nobody told me it was cadaver testing. It was the first meeting that I had after taking the territory from Delaware to Florida. That was my sales territory. So I'm giving you a little bit of it's in Virginia, but so um, I, I get in and nobody tells me that I'm about to work with dead bodies. Right. And so we oh, do a lot God. of slow motion camera testing. So they asked me a question. They're like, hey, there's something wrong with the image at this pixel right here. Can you look? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they start a 2000 frames per second video of a dead body in a, in a car crash. And so um, wild shit. But then one of the things that exists is A, we used to import dead bodies from India. And then there was, uh, you know why? Because there's so many of them. Oh God. There's a big supply, but in the U S we are so big. You're just importing black people. (laughs) No, no, no. That was years ago. 
Um, and so, but since we as Americans are so big and so much bigger than Indian people on a whole, there was a law put in that you couldn't import dead bodies from India anymore. You had to locally source them, which is, I'm all about shopping local. Well, that and makes sense too, because if you're, if, a, if I'm a 300 pound and fat ass American, you haven't tested this seatbelt and this car for my height, weight, so, you know what I mean? 100%. And so because of that, the supply of dead bodies went down, which opened up black market dead body sales. So I Isn't went- Horrific. Okay, keep going. So I went to the place one day and like, we had this sale that we were going to sell half million dollars. I'm pumped. And I get there and they're pumped. But when I get there, they're like, Stephen, we can't do this today. We had a big issue. What was the issue? They had imported dozens of bodies, all hepatitis C bodies. And so, so what happens when you crash a dead body against a wall? Blood splatter. So they had this whole issue with like hepatitis C all over the fucking test lab. This is not what we're supposed to be talking about, but why was I talking? Oh, because I was- you have to finish the story though. Cause now I'm like hep C on the wall. I'm with you. Now what? Right. Well, it comes back to environment. I guess the environment was filled with hep C. Um, no, they kicked me out as soon as they found out that the, all the bodies were hep C and I signed an NDA saying I would never, never tell anybody unless they're on Twitch. And did so they give you a big fat stack of cash. I hope they did. Well, they bought the, the equipment. So that was a fat sack of cash because of that. That's but insane. So then I, I, I was like the liaison between this company in Tokyo and Brazil. And so I would go down to Brazil and go work down there. And they had just put into place uh, airbags. Airbags mm-hmm. had just become a like a, legality. And I think it was in 2013 or 14, this was. And so I was doing a lot of work down there, uh, implementing airbag testing and stuff like that. And so the second day I'm there, we're celebrating, we're getting a bunch of drinks and these guys are talking, uh, politics. And so I was like, yo, I've heard a lot about the Amazon being a big issue. That's probably a big talking point here in Brazil. And he was like, Steven, my friend, the environment is a rich person's problem. He, he says that there's people down the street in favelas that they're, they're, they have no plumbing. Like, what are they, how are they to care about the environment and why do they give a fuck about the orangutan, you know? Yeah. And so it was this very eye-opening thing that like when people don't have the ability to plan far in advance because of not understanding if food is going to be on the table, then mm-hmm. it's very difficult for them to be fighting for their own environmental justice. Right. right. And so yeah. it is a thing that when I see uh, organizations like we act that it's great to see people fighting in their corner, in people's corner, right. Not mm-hmm. it, 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 but when when you are constantly fighting for uh, survival, and especially like, it's a good example, like through COVID, the environmental conversation really took a back burner, right? Because people just started worrying about their own immediate Mm -hmm. uh, health. And it was very hard to think about what was to come in front of them. And so I don't really have much joke on that part, but I do think that where I have a joke that, I, that I'm excited about where it can go is that a lot of the affluent people that this guy is saying are supposed to care about the environment, they do, but only when there's an animal involved. <laughs> right like they like that's that's, that's what it takes that's the like, polar bears like yeah. they need the polar bear they're like i know that motherfucker like right. he celebrates christmas just like me he takes care of all of his little kids and feeds them coca-cola i i, I can resonate with that polar bear and he's got a cool ass jingle i'd like to teach the world to sing who doesn't want to jam to that that song slaps right it's but but you need time. You need that polar bear when you see famine and drought happening like throughout the world, that doesn't resonate. You see people that are fighting for food 
and it just doesn't resonate. But then you get a turtle with a motherfucking straw in his nose. Mm-mm. What? Mm-mm. Let's Shut get that plastic down. bag tax going. Shut it down. Those people, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They need to make bootstraps first, then pull themselves up by it. But they better not throw it in the ocean because that's going to go up. A turtle. Yeah, you better not put that little plastic tip at the end of the bootstrap. Because then we have a fucking issue. That's going to be in a turtle's nose. Right? Like we, we as humans need animals to teach us lessons, right? Like why did we need Smokey the bear to tell us that we weren't supposed to start forest fires? Like why could we shut down if it wasn't for Smokey, Steven? He's also like a a hybrid creature because he wears jeans. He does wear, but he's got his, his chest all out. Like what's that? You got your old hairy man chest out. Like only you can prevent forest fires. Like, what a creep. Like, that's a little creepy, uh, Smokey. Okay. Creepiness aside, (laughs) Smokey the Bear, would you? Would I hit? I don't know. Like, in a bear world where I'm also a bear, or am I a (laughs) person in this scenario? Okay, okay. How about this scenario? You're the Charmin Bear, (laughs) and, 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 and you... You have a plethora I'm of toilet paper. I know what it do. Plus, I have some Charmin, so my back door is going to be super clean, right? <laughs> berries, but, you know, just knock those out the side. Knock them out of the way and handle your business, Smokey. He was kind of, I mean, he was kind of authoritative. I could feel the vibe. If I'm a bear, if I'm a human, my concern is being mauled to death during the act. I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> Yeah, could you imagine if, if that came out that Smokey the Bear had mauled somebody to death? That would do a big detriment to the forest fire community. I mean, but he did make a very good point. Only you can prevent forest fires. So yeah. there's no need to call 911 on Black people, right? Is that how that works? No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that he was that. <clears throat> but I, I do, I would say that people, people if there was an, an animal act like mascot to racial equality white people yeah. would listen more they would yeah they I, I i do not doubt that like if there was the anti-racist raccoon mm, mm. you have to pronounce the rat yeah it's, yeah a little that's a little ah, it tastes a little doesn't taste good on the tongue it's a no. little weird, but hilarious yeah I, i'm <laughs> all for an alliteration like i'm all is it kind of racist Sure, but it's a great alliteration. We're gonna keep it. Like that's me. That's, okay. that's my brand. <laughs> what about you? What's your experience with environment, with the environment, um, and maintaining it? So mine are not that deep. Like you went all the way to Brazil in the favela. Like that's like that's some real real shit's happening in the favela. Like you go in there, you may not come out. Like it's real. Like I, I remember um, Vin Diesel went into a favela. <laughs> In uh, in a what's the what's this the series they do Fast and Furious? He went in there, but he was on some like, yo, I'm Dominic Peretti, and I got like guns and shit, and y'all know me because I'm stealing cars and shit, and I'm dope. So they were cool with him, but it was I can't I don't know how you were in a favela. You're like you're like how did you do that? So mine aren't that deep, but uh, so one of my favorite experiences with I guess being green in the environment is when my daughter was, I want to say she was like five or six, so adorable. And she's in the car with my husband and she's eating a banana and she rolls the window down and throws the peel out the window, right? And my husband's like, Bella, or sorry, whoops, Boosie, what are you doing? You can't throw things out of the window. And she's like five or six. She goes, calm down, daddy. It's fine. It's biodegradable. And just rolls her window back yeah. up and it's like boop 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 like I've saved the environment, um, which I found absolutely hilarious when I heard the story later. Um, but she's also the same kid who tricked her dad into getting her McDonald's. So hey, yeah. wait, where where do you think she got this? At five years old, where did she get that education to know even the word biodegradable? I mean, we're a pretty wordy family, so you know what I mean. I I never talked to her like. Do you want to eat? eat? Uh, boo, boo, boo. I never, I, ever, I never talked to her like that. I was like, hey, you know, do you want a full course? You know, like we just talked regular to her. Sure. Also, she reads a lot, like a lot, a lot. Like she'll digest a novel in a day or two. And she went to private school. So, you know, they teach them all the stuff and things in private. A lot is a little different than public. The only, the only lesson I remember being like jammed down my throat in school or in like, 
five-year-old TV programming was stop, drop, and roll. Hilarious. I, yeah. yeah, I remember when that, when we were learning stop, drop, and roll, I had this never-ending fear that I was just going to spontaneously burst into flames. And right, so was, that was insane. Right, okay, so you thought that too, right. And so I was constantly practicing my stop, drop, and like I was constantly practicing it. Like I could kill the game at a good stop, drop, and roll. That and quicksand, I, I was very sure. Petrified of quicksand, always. Yeah, because you, why did we hear so much about it as kids? I, I don't know. The stop, drop, and roll one is like whoever, whichever marketing person's getting paid to, to jam, stop, drop, and roll, that person is probably sitting well. They're probably living in Newport, Rhode Island, got a big-ass house, the stop, drop, and roll house. I would not doubt it. Here's my other, um, I guess my other kind of funny environmental story. And then we'll, let's bring Kareen on. I uh, went and visited some friends in LA not too long ago. And she, it's her and a roommate. And they had no joke, like five, six different trash receptacles. Right. Like that's a lot of breaking up of the trash. And it was so confusing. <laughs> This is not a joke. It's embarrassing, but not a joke. It's whatever. This is, is really what I was doing. I was like just taking my trash with me when I would go out every day. So <laughs> in my rental car on the passenger seat, it was like a, a, a Whole Foods bag filled with like my trash from the day, like just sitting on the seat. I got some stuff from a dispensary, like that the bag that I got from there was like filled with trash sitting on my seat you know what I mean like I did not know how to stand at her trash cans multiple trash cans it's like this is the compost trash this is only for plastics but it's only for plastics that have been recycled once this is for regular plastic this is for pay I was like bitch I don't understand why why you're so white like I don't get why (laughs) well then it's like if you if you mess that up they act like you just murdered a child in front of them. Oh my God. You know how I know that one Thanksgiving, here's another story. That's hilarious that I can add into the mix. One Thanksgiving, my sister, she's, I'm a better cook. I'm probably the best cook in my family. So she asked me to come over and help her cook. And she entices me with a bottle of Johnny Walker blue label. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in there. So I'm cooking and drinking and cooking and drinking and cooking and drinking. And now it's probably about two, three in the morning. Everyone's asleep. I'm still up putting the last finishing touches. And I get the, I go to bed and I get the spins. And all I remember is getting to the kitchen, getting it all out of me, wiping my mouth and getting to sleep and feeling some comfort. And I wake up the next morning to, oh my God, you bitch, did you vomit in my recyclables? (laughs) (laughs) I bar, and then she had these like special eco-friendly dish towels. And that's what I had been wiping my mouth with was this like brand new, (laughs) super expensive, very special dish towel. It was like bombed all in her recyclables and just like wiped the vomit. And yeah, it was, I was a hot mess. Yeah, hey. one year sober. All right, let's bring up, let's bring our guest on. I'm gonna reintroduce herself. Her name is K. E to the R E to the N. Then we add another E. Okay, that I feel like I, that I, was I, horrible. That was really yeah, bad. I feel like it wasn't a good flow. But ladies and gentlemen, from We Act for Environmental Justice, let's meet the wonderful, the intelligent, the fantastic, the beautiful, the amazing, the funny, the dope. Kareem Taylor Esquire. Kareem, say something. Okay, so to your joke, back in the day, I figured out that my name fits in Usher's Nice and Slow. <laughs> oh, K E R E R E N E T U I. Hey, what you want to do with me? I've been doing that all my life. That's fantastic. That just like made my that made my day. I love that. K E. R-E. Do, you, do you know that song? U-S. H. Wait. U-S. Yeah, that's what it is. U-S. R-A. R-A. Y-M. O-N-D. Let me tell you what it's going to be. That's Usher Raymond. We're fans. You got to give me a second. That's whatever it is. Eat it. Do it. Sure. Yep. Boom. Mother of the year. Lucy. And rapping on my show that's actually live right now. So, hey, everyone. My daughter, she gives no fucks about what I'm doing ever. 
and she is just hey. like wanting to entice me into p- carrying out a late-term abortion. But we're not going to do that today. Hey. So, <laughs> it's okay. I love you. Um, so, Corrine, let's go start with just kind of the elevator pitch of what y'all do and right. then go a little bit more into detail about like what the last years looked like, um, especially 2020 and, and what things have looked mm-hmm. like for you guys. Oh, man. So we act for environmental justice is a a community led and people of color led environmental justice organization based in Harlem, um, what we call the northern Manhattan community for folks in New York. That's um, typically above 110th Street um, up to about Washington Heights and would those kinds of communities um, kind of reaching up to the Bronx. And it's been there in Harlem. We've been there in Harlem for 32 years. And our goal is to make sure that black and brown communities and low income communities can be a part of the creation of sound, fair, environmental health policies and practices, not only in the city of New York, in the state of New York, but also nationally. And so while um, we act as based in um, Harlem, I work and live in Washington, D.C., and I do federal policy here um, on behalf of WE Act. And we're one of the few environmental justice organizations with an actual physical presence in Washington, D.C. And so we also convene this coalition called the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum. It's about 60 organizations in about 24 states. And we help those smaller organizations, you know, do the work to connect with their members of Congress, their senators, et cetera, the EPA, when it was a cool place to be, um, Department of Energy and all that stuff. We, we help them make those connections and, and bring their issues um, to the forefront in addition to uh, representing WE Act here in, um, in New York. And so for people that don't know, why, why do black and brown communities especially need representation in the environmental conversation? That is a great question. And so like to your point about polar bears and um, unfortunately the mainstream perspective that when you think about the environment, it's typically being a tree hugger or being someone who um, is in the forest or, you know, bird watchers, et cetera, that is a part of it. But um, the environmental justice movement looks at the environment more holistically. We think of it as where you work, live, play, pray, go to school. And so when you say all those things, that's everywhere you are. Everywhere you are is your environment. But unfortunately, um, Black communities, Brown communities, Indigenous communities, um, communities um, from folks who might be working, um, low-income white communities that are like, you know, um, coal miners, et cetera, our communities typically are um, disproportionately um, more polluted. Race, more than any indicator, more than income, race is the biggest indicator of where the most uh, polluting facilities are. That's your power plants, that's your landfills, um, water treatment centers, et cetera. They're typically going to be located in our communities. And what that does, it lowers our property value. It um, also increases um, uh, um, poor air quality. So then that's why we might have more rates of asthma. That's why we might have more issues with respiratory problems. And even now when we connect to what's going on right now, it's a big part of why communities of color are experiencing COVID-19 at higher rates, because if you are more susceptible to asthma and other respiratory problems, you're more inclined to um, be impacted by COVID-19. I don't um, about that. Can you give the example you gave before we started the show about the bus depots and yeah. yeah. So in Harlem, um, you know, um, Manhattan, where everything is, is popping, whatever. I love coming up. I take the A train uptown, whatever, whatever. But in Harlem, um, above 110th, five of the MTA bus depots are in Harlem and that's five out of seven, I believe. And so if, and so if you cluster five bus depots, that's bringing those buses in with, you know, all of the exhaust and all of this other stuff. When buses idle, they're polluting the air, you know, that's impacting young people, children, elderly folks, other people with respiratory problems. If you have that high of a concentration of all of these buses that service the in- entire um, um, borough of Manhattan um, or um, just the island, you're going to increase the poor air quality for us. And that was a real big issue for WE Act. And so um, 
understanding that and knowing that we worked diligently to address that by creating, I don't know if people are familiar with it, but the Mother Clara bus depot in Harlem. Um, it's near 125th, not too, it's off of Frederick Douglass. And um, it's um, a LEED certified building. It has um, like uh, when the vehicles drive in, it has a way to kind of take the exhaust to kind of prevent it from going out into the communities. And um, we even worked with the city to make sure that uh, women and other uh, people of color, entre- um, entrepreneurs and, and engineers, et cetera, could benefit from that through being a part of the creation of it and all that other stuff. So wow. Yeah, we have a long history of addressing environmental issues um, in in the city. And the the double edged sword of that is as we fight for, you know, more parks, you know, we were a part of um, the creation of like the the park that's there along the Hudson River uptown. as you part, uh, as we fight for more green space, as we fight for more grocery stores, as we say, you know, we need um, uh, safer homes, et cetera. What that unfortunately does, it in a way encourages real estate developers to then think and want to be in Harlem now because it's more um, environmentally attractive. It's more, um, it, it's uh, it's not as uh, undesirable as it been in the past. So then it's in this weird way, our attempt to advocate for our healthier communities, clean air, et cetera, we also invite in this thing called gentrification. And so then those very same communities that were fighting to um, rectify these environmental injustices are now having to deal with higher rents and, and a whole host, and frankly, more white people coming uptown to live. And so it's, it's always interesting when I visit, um, when I visit uptown, when I come up, um, just frankly, how white and more white it's becoming um, above 110. So it, question, what is a lead building, a, a lead certified building for people that may not know? And then also, does, is that the same in the inverse where when BIPOC people are moving into a predominantly white neighborhood or area, does that area then start becoming more polluted? Meaning that people are like, hey, let's take advantage of this new, you know, this, let's start building plants in this area. Does that happen too? Yeah, so um, it, that has happened. And I think from a historical perspective, so I'll try to answer both questions in, in order. So like LEED certified buildings um, are buildings that prioritize sustainability. They, they prioritize energy efficiency. They prioritize um, more environmental design in the actual building and the construction of the the um, building to, to um, conserve energy to, you know, some might incorporate um you know, solar panels or um, um, energy efficient light beyond just like light bulbs, but fixtures and a whole host of things to make sure that that building not only is conserving energy, but um, is in some ways contributing to the environmental betterment Mm -hmm. of um, the folks within it. And uh, when we think about like um, the climate crisis, um, carbon emissions, or energy uh, loss is typically in poor building management. So that's why older buildings, you might have higher um, energy bills because your building is older and it doesn't have proper insulation. And so lead buildings, um, they come at like different levels, like gold, silver, platinum, et cetera. They think holistically about how to conserve energy, how to better manage um, water and other resources in the development of the, of the building. And so um, when we worked with the city to develop the Mother Clara bus depot, um, having it being LEED certified was a goal that we were able to attain. And then to your question, like the reverse gentrification kind of thing, like the reverse of that might be what we experienced um, with um, segregation, frankly. Um, you know, redlining were, was where, you know, the government, city, states, governments, et cetera, and banks were able to determine that b- white people only lived in this area and then communities were redlined to say this is where the black people can live. Those areas were typically um, undesirable, you know, neighborhoods that uh, maybe were already near a facility or they were further away from the hu- the hustle and bustle of things and um, black people ha- were forced to live there. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of it being redlined, the banks made the property value in those areas lower. Mm-hmm. And then because of segregation, when we think about um, all of the attempts just for us to live in safer, you know, neighborhoods, to buy a bigger house, et cetera, especially when people were able to afford more, um, moving into a white community um, was seen as a way, you know, like 
you know, I'm, I'm a middle-class family. I want the best for my family. They're, they're safer. They're, they're nicer communities. I want to move in. But in some cases, there were um, covenants in people's deeds saying, you know, Black people can't live here. Or um, people were... Um, um, push, you know, you know, banks wouldn't loan folks if they were trying to move into um, to an area. Like you guys remember the play Raisin in the Sun? Yeah, the whole of that was a black family trying to move into a white neighborhood and yeah. um, the 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 struggles that they had to f- finance it and to get in and all of that kind of thing. And so what kind of happens is this circular thing where if if it's thought of and it has been in our country, if you think black people living in your neighborhood devalues the neighborhood, you're going to move. That's white flight and that's when white people moved further up into the suburbs and then when black people moved in then um sometimes what's happened too is the um the cities then disinvest in those areas and then systemic issues in terms of employment and tax spaces like um if it if that lowers the proper value of those homes. And so the money that's required, you know, for our services to invest in education goes down or is lower in, in, in our neighborhoods because our property value is lower. So it's very circular. And then what happens is in an all black neighborhood, the property value goes down and down and down. And then after, you know, maybe decades of having depressed property value, real estate folks or people who, you know, are trying to look to invest will go into a predominantly black or brown neighborhood and buy the land um, way less than it would have maybe been in a white neighborhood. They buy it and then rents and things like go that or property values go up then when white people start investing in communities. So it's this real big circular thing that happens. And, you know, I joke about it all the time, like for a black neighborhood, you know, you're being gentrified when a white woman feels comfortable enough to walk her dog. And and yeah that comes with knowing frankly that more white people are there then you're going to have more police presence and and more i think of a protective positioning versus where sometimes the over policing that happening that happens in our community so it's it's very circular um how um disinvestment in our communities then creates opportunities to buy up our properties to gentrify and then price us out so it, it kind of goes like this i think yeah it's very cyclical that's crazy Go ahead, Stephen. Sorry. Can I ask, so, as a gentrifier, uh, <laughs> as the enemy, yeah, like as this. as uh, <laughs> the one described, <clears throat> I, I I moved into Bedside because that's where a I grew up listening to only rappers from from the area, and so I was already excited to be here. But it was also where I was able to rent where I was not priced out of an area. Right. And I, I tried to make um, a concerted effort to, you know, buy black and be supporting like black restaurants and stuff like that in the area. But is there a system that you've seen in the past where we'll stick with environmental because we're kind of in there, but when you're talking about Harlem, for instance, when you're making, when you're doing these environmental initiatives and real estate developers start to move in and the rent prices rise and maybe it drives people out and drives certain people in, have you seen a model that can break that cycle? Mm, I think so much of like, real estate and property decisions happen in, in, in private rooms and land development plans typically are 10 years, 15, 20 years out from even when we see the, those plans come to fruition. Um, it, it, for it to, I've not seen that many, like DC no. is being gentrified quite a bit. Oakland, um, you know, Chicago, any major city right now what's happening and you know this like the preference is to live in the city because you can walk you can have access to a whole host of restaurants you can have access to you know depending on where you are really good mass transportation trains buses etc and as there's that strong preference to be out of cars um and and live in a more like front walker friendly neighborhood or ride your bike then cities that were once and have have historically been disinvested are prime places for people to live you know and and what we're seeing 
in like the reverse now, like say in DC where I live, they're pushing the black people who can no longer live in DC or aren't able to qualify um, or find affordable housing in the district. They're being pushed either into Prince George's County or Howard County or other places further out where they don't have access to that really good mass transit or access to the, the, the Metro or the buses here. So I have not seen a good example of it to be frank, like gentrification, it's, taking over i think our city centers in a really um in a really scary and it's happening fast it's happening very very yeah well dc especially i think it's the fastest gentrifying city in the country yeah 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 um yeah okay we in talking about environmental so we one of the things that we were talking about before is this is a lot of the stuff that you guys are dealing with um, in metropolitan areas in high population density areas. You said that you're working with a coalition of how many groups nationwide? Right. So um, we um, coordinate or the, are the administrative arm (laughs) to the environmental justice leadership forum. And it used to be the environmental justice leadership forum on climate change, but we shortened our name. It's still pretty long. Um, (laughs) We we call ourselves EJ forum by short, but in that coalition, it's about 54 organizations all over the country. These are folks in Texas. These are folks in Savannah, Georgia, um, Louisiana, in the, in, in the cancer alley area, um, cancer alley area in um, in South Carolina, in North Carolina, in New York, we have other partners. We have partners in Connecticut, in Minnesota. Um, uh, we have partners in Washington State, in Oregon. And we just help them um, stay engaged around federal policy. Typically, environmental justice and grassroots organizations in general are hyper-local and mm-hmm. the about things at the city, county, and the state level if they if they expand that wide. Um, and if you looked at even at our website, we have like 10 issue areas. And because the needs of our communities are so vast, um, we typically have to just, we do so much with very little. And so these organizations that are in the EJ forum, because they're already stressed out capacity-wise, um, caring for their um, immediate community, we are essentially their eyes and ears here in Washington, D.C. when a bill comes out about an environmental issue or a climate or an energy issue or even like workforce development or housing. And so if we hear, you know, a congressional member from their state is talking about a certain thing, we'll say, hey, you know, hey, your member is talking about this. We can help you set up a meeting. Or um, do you want to weigh in and provide some recommendations on this this draft bill that they have um, before COVID, um, we flew and were we were in coalition with about fifty groups that came into DC to testify um, against the rollback of the National Environmental Policy Act, which is our country's oldest environmental law that was written in 1970. Ironically in the um, Nixon administration, but a part of that law um, allows communities to um, not only be aware, but have the ability to engage around um, federal projects like for transportation, the building of highways or ports, things like that, that have federal dollars in them. And so we flew people in from those areas that are impacted by those changes to talk about why they don't want to see this rollback happen or what it means to them. And and a part of that too was because the Trump administration administration in the four years that he's been in office, they've been incredibly um, strategic in uh, their work to deregulate as much as possible, particularly environmental deregulation, because he is and has been pretty um, in bold, um, um, pretty in, in, in debt to or in, in support to coal industry and other harmful <clears throat> So our opposition to those kinds of things um, make us in direct um, in direct line of the rollback. So I think over just in terms of the EPA, the, the administration has rolled back over 100 rules um, that we see value in that deal with water, that deal with lead, that deal with mercury, um, a whole host of things. Um, even uh, fuel efficiency standards and how um, that, you know, the gas that we drive impacts the air, et cetera. So we've been in constant opposition um, with the administration. And so our work in the last four years has really been trying to defend as many environmental rules and policies as possible. And it's been very difficult because we've had, you know, 
one, they don't care about the environment as much as they try. They, they don't even think it. They don't. But yeah. then on top of that, like they, in like who they've put over the EPA before they were there were either lobbyists for the coal administration or um, people from states who were in direct opposition um, to um, progressive environmental policy. So we're able to so tactfully and eloquently and politely call Trump a disgusting monster. (laughs) Saying it, I'm so impressed with you. I'm like, I'm like, you were just so tactful. I'm so impressed. One of the things we like to do, Corrine, is we, we love for our um, nonprofit speakers to give us a dope impact story. So I don't know if you work with individual people, but um, if you do, great. Tell us one of those. You don't have to give names. You can leave it anonymous. Or you can tell us about like your biggest win in legislation. We'd love to hear about either or both if you have two stories. We'd, we'd love it. But we have about five minutes left. So or three minutes left. So we're giving them to you with that. And then we're going to wrap. Um, well, I think impact um, organizationally uh, just this last year in October, we lost our deputy director. Um, his name was Cecil Corbin Mark. He was a really great mentor to me in the um, five years that I've been working with we act and like he was with we act for about 32 years and that like took the wind out of us and it's so um sad that he's not able to see you know the results of the election or whatever but he was such a great leader not only in the environmental justice movement but the broader energy movement he helped um start our solar worker training program and you know he really saw the in, in, in providing free um, solar training and, and workforce development opportunities for people in Harlem. And, you know, our, our goal is just to really continue the work that he did. So I just wanted to lift him up. Um, in terms of like wins, I, I will say because the Trump administration has been so anti-environment, um, traditional green organizations that we may have not always seen eye to eye with or may have been on the opposite side of issues, we found more opportunities to build coalition, to find areas of agreement. And I think that work also reflects why, frankly, the Biden-Harris administration's, their goal to build back America better has such a strong environmental justice emphasis. I think um, our communities really played a big role in helping push um, the value of prioritizing um, climate and environmental justice. You know, climate change is real. We get that. And unfortunately, if we leave it up to traditional green organizations who don't always have a lens for people and communities who are thinking about the polar bears or whatever, their ways to resolve that are not going to address um, the longstanding harms. We call them legacy pollutions. Like, you know, if I live in this neighborhood and for 50 years this facility has been here, that's a legacy of pollution that I have to live with, right? Mm-hmm. And and so that's why we use that term. And that's why I think, you know, environmental justice, which maybe has never been a presidential level issue, was something that you saw more and more come um, from uh, President-elect Biden from um, VP-elect um, Kamala Harris. And so we're really excited to see that change, um, at least in awareness. And now that we're looking towards inauguration on the 20th, we're going to do the work then of working with, uh, you know, people who have been friends. We have friends who are now going into the administration who know our issues well, who know us well. And we're going to be there to not only work with them, but hold them accountable when they aren't always on the mark. So I'm um, just looking forward to that. I think that, frankly, is the well, most. I'm also looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> one, one really cool thing I forgot to mention that I've been dying to mention because I was so blown away when I saw it because I'm a big fan of this person. Sally Field, she quoted you in her book, right? And if you don't. Oh, Jane Fonda. Jane, Jane Fonda. Fonda. Jane Fonda. Sorry. <laughs> I, I know Jane Fonda. Okay. Yeah, so I got to meet Jane Fonda yeah. uh, last year. So, um, for pretty much almost the, the span of the year from 2018 through 2019, Jane Fonda did what she called Fire Drill Fridays. And every Friday, she um, met somewhere on the Hill in D.C. and would hold a rally to talk about environmental justice, to talk about climate change, to talk about the climate crisis and, you know, show people that, you know, through literally getting arrested every week, why and using her platform to draw attention to it. And like her first rally, it was like 10 of us. (laughs) People didn't know showed up and it was like nobody but then by the time it was over it was hundreds and hundreds of people joining and protesting 
and going in and getting arrested in droves and other stars would come in and, and get arrested with her. Um, and then like it started happening all over the country. And so in the process of doing that, she, she did write a book called, um, I think it's a, what, what can I do? And I can get it and show it to you, but I'm in the book. I'm like, Oh my God. Oh, amazing. So Jane Fonda, everyone, I've been telling people Sally Fields because I'm an idiot, but Jane Fonda quoted this amazing human in her book, which is incredible. Like she's a freaking legend um, and her son ain't bad to look at either, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, like I'm just, you know, I I appreciate that people see value, I think in in my work. There's a lot of value. You told me, taught me so much during this conversation that I would have never thought of, you know? You know, honestly, um, as someone who dabbles in comedy, being able to tell a story and being able to do it in a way that makes it simpler, because these are very complicated things, it it connects, you know? Um, Like, you know, know, when I did comedy school, just like you did um, at the DC Improv, but, you know, setting up things in threes or, you know, how to set up a story and the punchline, like all of those kinds of things. I I try to use that in my public speaking that I have. Mm-hmm. Where, where can people find out about we act for ej how can they get involved can they how can they donate volunteer all of those things give, give us money. um so we act you can go online to weact.org um that's our our website address i know they're sharing the um donate link um if you want to follow us on instagram it's we act w-e-a-c-t the number four and then ej and that i believe that's both our twitter and our instagram and follow us um connect with us um we have um a lot of um activities and opportunities for people if you're in the new york area please consider um, coming to our membership meetings. We have them the first Saturday of every month. They're on Zoom right now. Um, even consider being a member where you can learn more about our work and, and be involved in some of our educating opportunities. We do um, in a lot of environmental justice education where we teach people about climate justice and all of those things and healthy homes and, and toxic chemicals and our personal care products, how that impacts women, et cetera. And we just really want to educate as many people as possible. If you aren't in the New York area, but you know want to be a member you can be what we call our vision member and that supports our work that we do nationally in dc but you know um the environmental justice movement is literally about making sure that people have access to clean air clean water a safe place to live and we all deserve that but frankly because of racism because of economic disinvestments in black and brown communities we have to fight more than white people and rich people to get that and while it's not fair and in many cases things are stacked against us the passion and the will to um to work for people is what drives us and support of others keeps us going too so we appreciate in advance anyone who supports today I love it. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Kareem Taylor Esquire with We Act for... We Act for Environmental Justice. Yes, all of those words. We Act for Environmental Justice. I have been Frankie French. And I'm Stephen Campbell. And this is Nonprofits. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6.30 p.m. EST. Thank you so much, you guys. Okay, I think we're quick.